Hello and welcome to A Couple of Your Files, where we discuss cultural realities and dissonance here from Lake Garda, located about two hours west of Venice and one hour from the most romantic balcony in Europe in Verona. My name is Bailey Alexander and I'm here with my partner Francis, who has predicted the last 14 elections correctly, including the French, including Trump and Brexit. As we promised, the French elections part 2, and today we deliver. So Francis, let's start with Macron's win. Vive la France! Vive la France! Uh, so, yeah, um, yeah, Macron win. Of course Macron won. There's absolutely no question that he was going to win. As we mentioned in part 1 of our uh, French uh, podcast, the French generally vote for who they want to vote for in the first round, and then they vote against who they don't want in the second round. And as predicted, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's supporters who got 20% in the first round and were a close second to uh, Marine Le Pen for second place, they're communists, right? They're never going to vote for Le Pen. They don't like Macron. They think Macron is arrogant. They think he's too business-oriented, not enough a man of the people, et cetera, et cetera. And he is a right-wing, he's relatively right-wing for their preferences. But Marine Le Pen is even more right-wing than he is. And she had no convincing economic plan. She had a few sound bites about how she was going to reduce the pension age, which without any clue for how she was going to pay for it during the single debate that the French have. And, you know, Macron came across as arrogant, but he also came across as somebody who knows what he's doing. In a crisis, the French generally pull together and, and, and vote for relatively sensible alternatives in contrast to, to our friends across the pond. The French elections are, are interesting. I mean, I, I think a lot of people take uh, some lessons from, from how the French run systems. In fact, it's an interesting study to see how people elect and what those roles actually are. The French president is a very powerful figure, much like the American president, because he controls foreign policy in France, and he's directly elected by all of the people. So he runs the executive, uh, and then he has a prime minister who tends to do domestic economic stuff. But, you know, the French president is, uh, you know, the single representative, and he has real power to do this stuff. The Italian president, his job is just to enforce the constitution, which means he can fire the prime minister. But essentially, all of the actual policies and all of the stuff that happens are in the hands of the prime minister. So it's very different. And, you know, the German president um, also is more of a ceremonial role with the real power in the hands of the chancellor, in this case, Olaf Scholz, before Angela Merkel. You know, everybody needs, just because somebody's called president doesn't mean that he has the same power in each country. And, you know, the way they elect them, the way that they are organized, the way that the, you know, stuff happens in the different countries tends to inform how the, those countries are going to behave afterwards. And, uh, you know, if you, if you pay attention to these things, you, you realize who's going to win the elections and what their position is going to be on any given issue. So, hey, Francis, now that we're in the middle of this crisis, which basically finds us in the middle of this reset, some call it, what are your thoughts on Europe in general as it feels the pressure? Do you think the EU is going to emerge weaker or stronger in the crisis? Uh, by crisis, I assume you're talking about the activities in Ukraine. That would be correct. So, yes, you know, it's, it's a kind of a wake-up call, all right? I believe that Europe is becoming stronger as a result of, of the crisis uh, in Ukraine. And the reason I believe that is that 
the Europeans have woken up to the fact that they need to strengthen their union and and make it more resilient to outside influence. Okay. The Russian aggression in the Ukraine has made the Germans realize that they don't want to be dependent on Russian gas. Same with the Italians and the others. And so now they're scrambling around trying to find ways to diversify their energy supply so they're not going to be held hostage on something critical like energy. They're already sufficient in food, so that's not an issue. But they're also strengthening their military. And and the reason they're doing that is they don't want to be held hostage by the Americans either. They want to basically be independent and be able to make their own decisions about whether they're going to do something or not and not have somebody come around swinging. It's a longer shot, but I think you're going to see the Europeans also explore diversifying away from the SWIFT because they're watching America decide to take all of the money that the Russians had stored uh, and just give it to Ukraine. Whether you believe in the Ukraine or Russia or not, you shouldn't be taking other people's money if you want to be the trusted third party in finance. You know, they're, they're looking at ways through the IBAN system and others to avoid having to go through SWIFT to make money transfer because they don't want things to be politicized. So Europe is, is strengthening. Europe is, is beginning to realize that the only way forward is to pool their sovereignty and that'll enable them to punch above their weight and you know, make their own deals happen without having to worry about the Russians or the Americans or the Chinese. And I think that's beginning to happen. But sensible people realize it's going to take, you know, 10 years before we can actually complete a restructuring of the energy scene. So no one should expect to see results tomorrow, but they are coming. And uh, that tends to be a good thing because it also ties into climate change. Uh, they needed to do something radical anyway. And this has provided an impetus to get the project started. So, you know, let's hope that something good comes out of this crisis. Yeah. I mean, as you like to say, everyone sits there in their armchair eating their popcorn, telling us that we need to turn off our gas yesterday. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so easy to say when you're a long way away and you don't buy anything Russian that, you know, you should, everyone else should stop buying Russian things. You know, when you have 50% of your homes heated with gas that comes from pipelines in Russia and there's no alternative supply, you're talking about telling grandma she should freeze in winter. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure in America, if somebody translated what they're saying to Europe into Americanese and said, hey, we want you guys to have 50 percent of your grandma's freeze this winter because somebody somewhere else needs you to do this the americans will tell everybody to get off you know pretty quickly so you need to look at the position in which other people find themselves i'm pretty sure the germans do not want to support the aggression in the ukraine but they don't want their grandparents to freeze either so you know it's it's just uh, you need to understand where they're coming from Again, there's a lot of nuance. Aside from the 33 billion that Zelensky is uh, tapping his toe, waiting impatiently for from the Americans. The Americans uh, aren't giving him anything, right? The Americans are not giving him 33 billion. What they're giving him is $33 billion worth of weapons, which he can then use to continually destroy his country and the country next door if he can actually find a way to project into Russia and make things even worse. The money doesn't leave the states, right? The money goes from the American taxpayer to the American government and from the American government to the American military manufacturers. And then the weapons get sent over to Ukraine. 
So, you know, let's be clear about what's actually happening because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not actually conducive to the real solution of the problem. I'm not sure. I think 8.5 of that goes to economic aid. Pointless. I mean, why would you give eight and a half billion in economic aid to a country that's getting bombed? What are you going to do? Start construction and then next day it gets bombed again? You need to finish the war before you can effectively use the aid. And it's great that the aid is committed and you should wait and actually ship it after the war is over so you can reconstruct things that aren't going to get blown up again the next day. Well, our listeners know that we are passionate about the EU and the particulars involved in becoming an EU member. So I realize that Zelensky's playing the short game extraordinarily well, but I'm not so sure about the long game. And if he wants to become an EU member, and if he understands the Copenhagen criteria, I'm just not sure that it's going to be such a smooth process. Just because the Americans want to make this proxy war go on and weaken Russia severely. And so I'm just not sure Zelensky's inspired to make it to the, the peace table. The last is, you know, the triumph of hope over reason. Basically, what he's doing, he, he knows that the EU is a peace project, and he knows that if he had been a member of NATO and he had been a member of the EU, then it is likely that the war would not have occurred, okay? Which is great, but he wasn't. Uh, and therefore, he is now fighting a war, and neither the EU nor NATO is going to accept a new member in the middle of a conflict. And one has to remember that both NATO and the EU requires unanimous acceptance by all current members uh, of any new members. You know, you're talking about, you know, are you willing to commit, you know, your soldiers, in our case, Italian soldiers, to go and fight for Ukraine against Russia right now? And the answer is, we would be happy to have you guys in afterwards. You settle this business with Russia and get peace. And then we'll help you rebuild and reconstruct. And then eventually you'll meet the Copenhagen criteria, which are also there to protect new members. Members whose economies are not in a position to join shouldn't join because uh, the free movement and the, the free uh, tariffs and everything else will destroy a weak economy because everybody will just buy German stuff and that'll be it, right? And no one's going to basically buy Ukrainian goods and services just because you're a new member. You actually have to build your economy and make it resilient, fix rule of law, uh, eliminate corruption, you know, and then eventually the EU will ship you some funds that will help you raise your infrastructure and get raise your game until you can play on an even playing field with the rest of the EU. So it's not a game. You know, it's not like something that can be decided and magically all these things happen. Uh, the EU has made mistakes in the past, uh, notably letting Greece in when its economy wasn't really in, in shape to play. And they're not going to make these same mistakes again. They're, they're based, that's why they invented the Copenhagen criteria, is to make sure that countries have the requisite things that will enable them to be a successful member of the EU. So that's for the EU. For, for NATO, is similar. There are two problems with NATO. Uh, one is that, you know, you, you're basically committing the country to definitely get into a toe-to-toe -to -toe match with another nuclear power. And it's not a given that NATO will win. So, you know, there's going to be at least one NATO member somewhere along the lines who says, hey, maybe we should wait till this conflict is over before we start talking about introducing the Ukraine. At the end of the day, they're not going to get into the EU or NATO instantly. They may well get in there over time once they actually meet the criteria. But, you know, everybody should 
calm the rhetoric down and look at the real picture, what's going on. And what should be going on is that the Ukraine and Russia should come to the table. Russia is finding this invasion a lot more awkward than they ever imagined originally. Those sanctions have got to be hurting Russia some. But, you know, and, and, and they're probably incentivized to actually talk about, you know, quid pro quo, let's get some peace going. And what they should do is they should sit down and figure it out. Until they do, the thing is going to continue forever because Russia will not walk away with its tail between its legs. It never has, and it never will. You know, and for Russia, this is existential. For America, it's a television show. So, you know, you're, you're really looking at, you know, what happens when you put a nuclear power with its back to the wall? You know, it's, the answer isn't pretty, right? The, the, there's no good answers. Uh, I feel for the Ukrainians. I wish that their country weren't being destroyed. But the, the point is that we should encourage all sides to basically move towards peace practically and, and as quickly as possible. That, that's how we feel. Um, I believe you feel the same way, Bailey. But the point is that uh, at the moment, I'm not seeing any signs of common sense breaking out. Anything you want to say about Russia turning off the taps for gas in Poland? Yeah, you know... <laughs> Okay, so Poles are basically genetically engineered species to hate Russians. I, I've never met a Pole who didn't hate Russians. They, they have forever, uh, and they will forever, and that's the way they are. So you have this aggressive country, which is a member of the EU and is a member of NATO, uh, on the border with Ukraine, and they're basically making disparaging noises about Russia all the time. They're calling the whole thing genocide. They're calling the whole thing, you know, all sorts of things. And then they're surprised when their pipeline gets turned off. You know, next time your neighbor or somebody and, and you basically scream abuse across the porch every day, then, you know, don't be surprised when the neighbor turns the fire hose on you, right? The, the, the point is, Poland needs to pay for the gas and it needs to basically stay neutral in the conflict. Otherwise, they risk that the Russians will turn the pipelines off. Other countries have continued to pay. Many countries are quietly figuring out how to actually pay in rubles in order to keep the gas flow going. And everybody is actually trying hard to find other sources of gas and reduce the dependency on Russia so they don't have to worry about it. But until they do, they're not going to be crazy and switch the damn pipe off. The Poles are you know, suicidal and like lemmings going over that cliff. And the talk that Russia is going to come after the rest of Europe next is, is just not credible. There is no way that Russia is going to pick a fight with all of NATO after taking a beating in Ukraine. They're just not interested in that. What they want is something very simple. They don't want NATO, Ukraine to be part of NATO with missiles two, miles from, uh, two, two hours from Moscow. So, you know, it's a, it's a clear objective and, you know, they're going to try and enforce that. Maybe they'll succeed, maybe they won't. But what they're not going to do is pick a fight with everybody else. I, I just don't see it happening. And you'll see. But uh, Poland has been, you know, very loud and strident about how the Germans should turn off the gas. And, you know, now they're going to feel how, what it's like to have the gas turned off. And we'll see how long they actually uh, continue. 
Although knowing Poland, they'll continue anyway because genetics, you know, it's like uh, we hate Russians even if we're starving, even if we're dying, even if anything, we don't care. We will never agree with Russia, no matter what, under any circumstances. So that's who we are. Well, I guess all politics is local, but uh, generally I don't hear Italians discussing politics in the street, you know, in the public square, as it were. And uh, I'm, I'm hearing them mutter underneath their breath, you know, when is this going to end? But Lake Art is an interesting place. It functions extraordinarily well, and the people are, are pretty happy here. There's been, you know, prosperous growth since the 50s. It's a great place to invest for business. And, of course, part of this has to do with the autonomy from the central Italian government, because most Italians don't like the government to intervene. Well, they, they do like the government to intervene, right? They, they're very happy the government intervened to reduce the gasoline price, for example. Yeah, for example. Um, so, you know, the point is that, that they, they're, they're, they're concentrating on what's important to them and they're very much live and let live. They don't go dictating to other people what they should do. Italians tend to go forth and help people. We helped the Chinese back in the day when nobody else was helping the Chinese uh, to build hospitals and deal with uh, uh, health crises. We've, we've sent people all over the place to help. We help people and we don't ask what ideology they have insist on tying strings to the help we just help people and in return during our moment of need uh, a year or so ago when everybody was dying in Bergamo they the the Russians and the Chinese sent lots of aid uh, to Italy with no strings attached they said hey you helped us when we needed it and here you were returning the favor we the Russians sent an entire division of uh, of uh, military hospital with their equipment to actually build the hospitals and just help out and the Chinese did similar things and and we appreciate that and you know we regret that there's war we ain't going to start one it's in our constitution and we just wish everybody else would calm down and and just try to get along a little better and, and stop telling everybody else what to do Italians are pretty happy with Draghi aren't they Draghi is doing his best right and he's got a difficult position but he is he's doing a good job considering the difficult position that he's in uh, he has to balance our actual needs with the forces that are being bandied about and the hysteria that's going on in the press and so forth right he has to be seen to be part of the team right so he's like okay well we don't want the russians to invade ukraine that's true so what can we do well we can try to diversify our energy supply and he sent de Mayo down to algeria to try and negotiate an increase in the gas that they ship us and he he basically said to the italians that you know maybe we shouldn't turn our air conditioners on to save energy and that will reduce our dependence on russian gas but Italy is 50% dependent on, 40% of Italy's gas comes from Russia, and it needs to import at least 50% of its energy. So he knows that Italy cannot survive unless it finds alternative sources, and he's got people looking for them. But if he doesn't find them, he's going to continue to buy them from Russia, because we're not into suicide, right? We're into just, you know, we're keeping everything going. We are making sacrifices. The prices have gone up. We're certainly taking people in and helping them and giving them free access to your Italian class and all sorts of other goodies and bennies. We don't have any uh, visa restrictions on Ukrainians that are fleeing the conflict. We're helping them. We're sending hospital teams and, and people to help you know, with the, the problems out in uh, Ukraine. We're doing the things that we would normally do, which are you know, basically help. We help people. We don't generally ship them weapons, and we definitely do not in militarily intervene in any way uh, unless 
uh, we're obliged to through our NATO commitments. In fact, the NATO commitments are listed in the Constitution as an exception, which will allow us to actually engage in military conflict outside of Italy, because uh, you know there are treaty obligations to defend. But it's the key word there is defend. We do not pick fights. You know, the Italians are doing what they can, and they remember, which a lot of people have forgotten, that back when Crimea was annexed and everybody got hysterical about Russia, we basically uh, sanctioned it. And the result was that we lost our entire fruit market because Italy was the biggest exporter of fruit to Russia. And then Russia found other sources and they're never going to come back. And we had to struggle. And many of our farmers went out of business uh, to find alternative customers, right? I mean, when you decide that you're not going to sell stuff to somebody who's your customer, unless you have a very good plan in advance about what's going to happen with your product, you're the one who's going to suffer because they've got the money. They can buy the stuff somewhere else. And in likewise, at the end of the day with the gas, we need the gas to heat our homes. The Russians have the gas. They don't have any shortage of gas. Their homes are hot. They may not have our money, which you know will hurt them in some ways, but they're not actually completely dependent on our cash because they can sell their stuff somewhere else, like India. You need to think about sanctions because there are consequences to it. Short term, it may make them think that it makes sense to go back and do some peace. But once you wait for the supply chains to adjust and for them to find other customers, they're just going to blow you off, right? You're not going to regain uh, the market that you lose. And that impacts uh, downstream a lot of things, right? If you don't have energy, your factories can't operate. So there's actually a lot of pain that's being banked at the moment, which hasn't hit the consciousness yet. You know, we better solve this thing quick. Otherwise, everybody's going to be suffering quite badly, including the Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, speaking of sanctions, I think uh, Madeleine Albright just passed away. I'm not sure if our listeners recall, but she was famously exposed as rather heartless when asked about whether or not it was worth killing a half million Iraqi children with those sanctions. And her answer came quickly and a bit too swiftly. She said yes. She thought it was worth it. So I don't know. It just feels, uh, I'm not sure in America, this war feels very close. It just, it feels close here, doesn't it? Europeans, first of all, remember the war differently because the war was real here. I'm talking the Second World War. American soldiers went and fought, uh, but the American public didn't have their homes blown up and, and their children massacred and so on and so on. It was just the soldiers. So it's a little different. In, in Germany, of course, they, they were completely traumatized by the war and they have radically changed their, their attitude and so forth. But what you have to remember is that propaganda can seep into consciousness before you know what's going on. Right. Everyone wonders why the Germans allowed Hitler to do the things that he did, which were terrible. But, you know, they don't seem to see that when America goes around and says things like we need to blow up Iraq, even though there were no Iraqis involved in 9-11, we need to blow them up for peace and democracy and goodness and demo you know, whatever it is that we stand for. And we're sending tons of weapons. We're dropping hundreds of thousands of tons of bombs on the place, killing lots of civilians. Uh, but that's good because it's us doing it. Well, that's more or less what Hitler was saying when he was going around bombing Poland, doing all this other stuff. You know, it's easy to explain to your people that you're the good guys. Everybody wants to believe that you're the good guys. But you need to have more perspective and look at what's actually happening before you make that determination. Uh, although I don't expect that to happen because people are gullible. 
so easy to justify in the American press that we should send more money, which means more bombs to the Ukraine, because there's no Americans dying in this conflict. We're hurting the Russians, and we like that. And we're not suffering because the Ukrainians are doing it for us. You know, you're saying it's just too easy for you guys, right? It's, you wouldn't be so warmongering if you were getting blown up. And everyone's like, well, no one would do that to us because we'll blow them and nuke them into kingdom come and all this other stuff. And I think, well, you know what? They can do the same to you. You know, when you're actually faced with nuclear uh, Armageddon and it's a real threat, then let's see how you say, because it's so easy to say when you're in your armchair eating the popcorn, but it's a little different when you're actually face to face with the consequences. You know, I, I don't expect it to change, unfortunately. But I'm very glad, as you pointed out, that our government just wouldn't do that because our people wouldn't tolerate a government that did that. And we're like, gosh, we hope this thing gets over quick. When it gets over, we will help the Ukraine to rebuild, do our best to help them. We will also continue to talk to the Russians because we don't think they're demons. We're going to, you know, hopefully peace and, and sanity will break out and we can all sit down together and figure out how we can help each other become more prosperous and peaceful. And, and one of the things that really should happen is we should disenfranchise all these military guys who, who make all these weapons. Because if you make weapons, you need conflict because no one buys new weapons if they haven't fired the first ones. So, you know, the, the bomb makers are really happy. They're like, whoa, that's fantastic. They're using all those bombs. That means they need more. Let's get those factories going. You know, let's sell them more weapons. And it's fantastic. And you're sitting here going like, your industry sucks. You don't produce anything of value, cultural, uh, spiritual. You, you're just parasites and you live off of human misery. And, and there's no real difference in terms of people between Russian people, American people. We're all people. Using your bombs to kill someone else is not a good way to go about it. It's not a good way to earn a living. Let's hope, uh, let's drink you know, some of our excellent Italian wine to, uh, and toast the concept of the military industrial complex finally losing some of its clout. And let's hope we can usher in a, a better world. I mean, we have other things to worry about. Climate change is going to require cooperation amongst the entire planet. And we're still shooting at each other. Maybe the, maybe the dogs will inherit the earth, right? Because we're too stupid to be custodians of it anymore. Well, at least Macron won. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy that Macron won. I think he's actually, he is arrogant. Of course he is. But he is, he's, a, he's a competent economist. And up until the effects of the Ukrainian war happened, France's economy was growing at a record pace it hasn't seen since the end of the Second World War. You know, if, he's, if he gets a chance to actually implement some of his policies, he's, he's doing well. And he is a staunch, unashamed European like we are. And he knows that uh, if, we can, if we can work together, we, we are stronger. So let's, let's wish him all the best. Yes, of course. So vive la France. And you're leaving tomorrow for France. So enjoy. And I know you will. And hey, uh, we don't always talk about war. We do lots of fabulous interviews. And we're lining up some more for your listening pleasure. And hey, please, uh, please check out my website at baileyalexander.com for little films, essays, and lots of pretty photos of Venice and Lake Garda and Italy and Europe. And I hope to see you here soon. But for now, arrivederci.